Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. This morning's sermon title is Encounter the Needed Touch. And so if you want to turn with, your, with me to your Bibles, Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, it starts like this. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. All right. Well, we are doing uh, this new series that I am calling Encounter. And it is about how we encounter God, about what it's like to encounter God, and of course, our great need to encounter God. And what I want to do today is to look at this tiny little story uh, that was read for us where Jesus enters into Peter's house He sees Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. It might have been malaria or something like that. He walks over, and we read these words, that he touched her hand, and the fever left her. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And what I want to suggest to us today is this is exactly what we need as well. We need a touch from Christ. We need to encounter him. We need him to come and to touch us because there's a lot of areas in our life where we also need healing. I mean, this might be actual physical things just like Peter's mother-in-law had, a fever or some sort of a, a physical thing where we need Christ to come and give us either the strength to get through it or to heal us of it. It could be more of like a metaphorical fever. You know, you're, it's the fever of an unhappy mind where you're just stressed out and just life is collapsing for you. You've you're, you got a fever of worry always coming into your mind. You need Christ to come and to touch you and to bring healing to your mind because you're too consumed with things that are going on. Perhaps you're just like Peter's mother-in-law, metaphorically speaking, you're lying in bed because you're just so exhausted from the crushing difficulties of life that you feel like you can't take it anymore. You need Christ to come, to touch you, to give you the strength to get up and to do what needs to be done. Or you could even just say, one of the things we struggle with most would be sin itself. Sin comes in, and so it's the fever of guilt. It's the fever of shame that comes when we know we shouldn't have done this thing. We know it doesn't honor Christ, and yet we did it anyways, and so now that fever is with us, and so we need a touch from Christ. So whatever is crushing your spirit this morning, uh, whatever is getting you down, whatever you're struggling most with, whatever it is, fill in the blanks there. What we need is to encounter Christ. We need Christ to come to us and to bring that healing touch that all of us need. This story is so simple, it really requires a little explanation for us, but I think there's a lot in it for us. So what I want to show you this morning is three things that Jesus' touch did for Peter's mother-in-law and three things that I think Jesus wants to do for us today. It's the same three things. And as we look through these three things, I'm praying that what was true for her would be true for us, that we would encounter Christ, and I'm really praying that this morning in this room and for you at home, that you would encounter Christ, and by the end of this message, by the end of this service today, you would say, Christ has, I've encountered Christ, he has touched me in a way this morning that has lifted the fever that is on my mind 
or in my heart. So three things. Here's the first thing I want to talk about. It's that Jesus' touch creates anticipation. His touch creates anticipation. So here's Peter's mother-in-law, and Jesus, we read, goes over and touches her. Now let's just ponder on that for a moment, because that, that's not an insignificant detail. Why did he actually have to go and touch her? I mean, this is Jesus of whom the Scriptures say in John uh, chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, through him all things were made. So Jesus is the one, the voice in Genesis 1, along with the Father and the Spirit who says, let there be light and there is light. He speaks and a universe leaps into existence. So if Jesus, the eternal Son of God, can speak and a universe comes into existence, why would he need to walk over and touch her? Why not just stand there and say, fever, be gone? Clearly he could have done it, and yet he doesn't. He walks over and he touches her. And Jesus does this all the time. If you've read the Bible at all, you know that this is like his constant thing he's doing, watching her, touching a blind man's eyes, touching people all the time in order to heal them when he could just speak and cause it to happen. Why does he do this? I think the main answer is going to come in our second point this morning. However, I think a sub-point of this is that whenever we're about to be touched, if somebody walks up to you and they go like this to put their arm on your shoulder or something, what does it do? It creates anticipation that something is about to happen. You, you might not know what it is, but the real point is that touch takes a relationship that is maybe a little bit distance, it suddenly brings it close, and the touch and creates anticipation or expectancy that now, right now, in this moment, something is going to happen. So I think of us this morning as well. I think we need to have that anticipation kindled again, that Christ can actually meet with us. He could meet with you, with whatever it is that you are going through. Because often what happens is we, we pray about things or we want things to happen or maybe we just don't even pray and life is just hard and we don't have a sense of expectation that Christ might do something for us and even maybe 20 years go by and you're like, wow, well, I'm still struggling with the same old things, struggling with the same old sins and we just kind of accept it as our lot in life. Now sometimes it is our lot in life. In fact, in a couple weeks, we're going to be looking at the famous passage where Paul talks about how he has a thorn in the flesh. That is a difficulty that is in his life that he cannot get rid of, and the answer is God does not take it away. He does not heal him, so to speak. He teaches him that through this thorn in the flesh, he's going to learn his weakness, which will make him depend on God, and God's power will be shown through him. Sometimes that is the answer. Lots of times that is the answer, but not always. And it's especially not true when it comes to sin. There's not sin that God says, yeah, I want that in your life. No, no, no. When it comes to sin in our life, God says, I want that removed because I want to give you a freedom and a health that can only come when it is gone. So in a few weeks, we're going to hear how sometimes we need to see the things that we can't get rid of in our life and accept them as weakness that God is going to teach us through. But today, I actually want to talk about something different, and that's that we sometimes need to hear the words of James. James in chapter 4 says this, you do not have because you do not ask. In other words, there are things that we are to ask God for that can bring change into our life, and there needs to be an expectancy there that Christ can actually change these things. 
Sometimes we see God working in mighty ways in other people's lives, but maybe we're not experiencing it ourselves. And there could be many reasons for this, but what I'm getting at today is maybe it is because we're not asking. We're not seeking. We're not knocking on Christ's door saying, Jesus, I need something from you here. Jesus, I'm seeking you. We're not expecting anything. The famous poet named Alexander Pope used some satire to drive this point home. Here's what he said. Blessed are those who expect nothing, for they will never be disappointed. Satire, right? Cutting, but it's true. Blessed are those who expect nothing. Don't worry, if you expect nothing, you'll never be disappointed because you'll never get anything. What Christ is calling us to do is to have faith, to trust him, to look to him, because great things can happen. Oh, yes, I know. As soon as I begin to talk like this, especially maybe in kind of central circles, people can get a little uneasy. Are, are you saying now that are we, are we maybe tending towards like what we call the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? If we just had faith, uh, then God will promise to heal every, all of our sicknesses. If we just had more faith, God would make us wealthy. If we just had faith, God would solve all our problems. Some people preach that. Is that, is that kind of where we're going today? No, that's not where we're going. That's not what the Bible teaches. But listen, I know, I'm, I'm, I know most of you, most of my central audience, we know the Bible does not teach that. And so what I'm a little more concerned about sometimes with more of a central audience is that we don't have faith that God could do much at all. Because we're so, we know that we shouldn't abuse faith to say things like that, we, our expectations then come down lower. For instance, we read that Jesus, when he was in his hometown, could not do miracles because the people lacked faith. Or we read these great words in Hebrews chapter 11, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, we are to have a sense of expectancy to come to God saying, I believe you exist. I'm seeking your face. There are things that we need in this world, God, and we're seeking you for them. And this scripture is saying he, he delights to reward those who seek him. So as Jesus, you see this throughout his life, as Jesus came encountering with people as they drew near to him and he saw their faith, he healed them. His touching of them kindled their expectations. And all I'm trying to say in this first point is let's allow this text to maybe kindle some new expectations in our hearts where maybe we've just kind of let everything go and we're like, ah, I guess nothing here can change we cannot become defeated, defeatist in our mentality when it is Christ who we are talking about. I know there's dangers and this can be abused, but I hope you hear where I'm trying to go this morning, trying to kindle some expectation in our hearts to say, Jesus, I don't know how you will do all this, but I trust that you can if you want to. Jesus, I'm looking for you to do something new in my life today. Jesus, I'm looking for you to even do something I thought was impossible Jesus, I need your help. So the first thing I think that Jesus' touch does is to create anticipation that something is about to happen. That's the most basic level of, what I think, what we learn in our passage today. Here's the more important and more primary thing, though. In the second place, Jesus' touch reveals a great truth. It reveals a great truth, and the great truth is simply this, that the God of heaven and earth delights to draw near to those who need him, not near as in just socially distanced, 
Near as in so close that he wants to touch us. That's close. To put it negatively, what the great truth we learn here is that God does not deal with all of our difficulties from a distance, from a safe distance away from us. No, he delights to draw near to us. What a message for us today living in this culture. The vast majority of people in our culture will say, of course I believe in God. There are people who are atheists. Most people, however, will say, I believe that God exists. However, if you press in on that and you say, what do you think God is like? The vast majority of people now are going to say, well, I think he probably created everything that exists, but he's not really involved in the day-to-day affairs of human living. So we can compare God kind of to the Queen of England. Okay, she's rich, sort of powerful, I guess, especially back in the day when kings and queens were powerful. But I mean, she's a long way away from us, and she really has nothing to do with our day-to-day lives. But she's the monarch. She deserves the reverence and the respect that she gets, right? That's how most people view God. Great and powerful, deserves respect and honor and all that kind of stuff. One day, I guess, we'll meet him when we die, but he's not involved in the day-to-day activities of human existence. And yet, in this little story with Peter's mother-in-law, we see the very opposite of this. We see that our Creator is not like that at all. God comes right down into the mess of human existence and touches Peter's mother-in-law. Isn't this really the entire Christian story? In fact, this is what sets the Christian story apart from all other stories. That God, when he saw all that was going on with our human existence, with our sin, with death in the world, with all of our suffering, with judgment to come, God did not remain aloof from it all. God did not stand from a safe distance way far away. No, God sent his only son into this world. The Lord of glory took on human flesh and became a man. Through Jesus, the eternal son of God, God literally comes and touches humanity. And just think on this for a moment. It's not even that God just came, that Jesus came, and he lived in some sort of space station that kind of orbited the earth. Okay, I'm going to come close, so maybe I'll beam a few people up and down to come meet me, but I'm going to remain even still socially distanced from all of you creatures down there. No, that's not what he did. He comes right down into it. And the Bible, especially the book of Hebrews, emphasizes that he literally takes on a human nature. It's not even that God said, okay, I'll come down and I'll look like a human being, but secretly I'm going to use my divine power so I don't have to deal with all the weaknesses and the difficulties of human beings and all the pain and suffering you go through. That's an ancient heresy that teaches that Jesus looked like a human being, but he wasn't actually a human being. No. God becoming a man goes so far as to take on fully a human nature. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He gets so exhausted one day that he falls asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. He's so tired out. And then, of course, he has such mental anguish on the night before he is crucified. He's so stressed out that blood begins to mix with his sweat because he is so just beginning to stress out that he can't even handle it anymore. And then, of course, on the cross, he is literally pierced, hands and feet and suffering as any human being would. The God-man did not live in a bubble 
that protected him from the hardships of life. He entered right into it all. He touched all of human experience. This is the great truth of the Christian story. And of course, we see it most clearly at Calvary, at the cross of Jesus. There, God is literally wrapping his arms around human beings. He's taking on all the suffering, taking upon our sins upon himself. Again, not just appearing like he is, he actually is. He's getting into the mess. He, can't, he cannot get any further in taking our sins upon himself. This is the Christian message, that in Christ, God did not stand at a safe distance, but in Christ, God becomes a man and touches us. Just think for a moment about how radical this actually is in our day and age. Think of the gods of other religions and just compare. For instance, in Islam, Allah is definitely viewed as the creator, the almighty, the powerful one who deserves all worship and reverence and respect and submission. But Allah would never take on a human nature. In Islam, it is blasphemous to suggest that God would have a son and would come and become a man, and even worse, to think that this son of man would be crucified at the hands of his own creation. Such a concept is rejected entirely. In Buddhism, for instance, so popularized here in the West, there's not even a concept of a personal God. There's no personal God who would come down and actually care about your life or my life. It's an impersonal thing, and our goal is to escape the sufferings of this life. Or you think of what's so popular here on the West Coast with New Age teaching, the idea that the universe is not ruled by a God, and a personal God that is, but maybe by an impersonal force or by the law of attraction or by the stars and the planets of the zodiac. And so you need to do things like read your horoscope and all that to figure out how you should get through the difficulties of life. How different this all is. How cold, how impersonal it all is when you compare it to the creator of heaven and earth who through his son Jesus Christ takes on a human nature, walks among us, touches us, converses with us, and goes to Calvary to take upon all of our sin and all the evil and all the worst things in this life in order that we might be free of them. What a difference between these things. Even compare this to how God reveals himself through Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New. The coming of Jesus is everything. So in the Old Testament, for instance, you get pages and pages uh, on things like leprosy. Someone gets leprosy, there's all kinds of rules. Got to make sure they're outside the camp, can't have a whole camp being infected with them. Uh, They become ceremonially unclean, they cannot draw too near to God. Other people, if they touch them, you would become ceremonially unclean, and so you then cannot come draw near to God. And so there's all these rules that go with this. To touch someone with, with leprosy is not a smart idea at all. You remain distant. And yet in Luke chapter 5, we read a story about a man who has leprosy, and we read these words. While he, being Jesus, was in one of the cities, there, was, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You see his faith? And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And everyone around would have been like, Jesus, stop, don't do that. Jesus, what, what are you doing? What? 
Everyone would have just been, what is Jesus thinking? He's a rabbi. He knows the Old Testament. You don't touch a leper. Jesus, you could get leprosy, and Jesus, worse, you're the rabbi. You're supposed to be teaching us how to worship God. You are going to become ceremonially unclean by touching the leper. Don't do that. But the verse goes on, and we read this. Jesus says to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So contrary to the way that it always works, when Jesus touches the leper, Jesus does not become unclean. The leper becomes clean. This is the picture of God entering into humanity. This is the picture of what God is like, that Jesus touches us, and when he touches us, we don't mess him up. (laughs) He makes us clean. He is the one who comes and causes an encounter to take place where everything changes. And what a challenge for us because it was the Pharisees, the conservative religious rulers who maintained a safe distance always from the lepers and from the sinners around them. They wanted to live holy lives and they would teach all the right truth and things like this. But then we read that Jesus comes and he does this right in front of them and they get all upset. They thought they were very holy because they always kept a distance from people who were, quote, sinners or people who were not following Christ well. And Jesus was so scandalous because he came in right near, ate with them, touched them, spoke to them, cared for them, and healed them. Jesus never approved of sin, but he came so near in touching them and loving them. So we got to ask ourselves, are we more like the Pharisees who preach a lot of truth, but would never draw near to people who in our culture we view as, quote, sinners? Or are we more like Christ? We draw near, always drawing nearer, never approving of sin, but drawing near, loving, caring, speaking as we're able to, and helping people like that. Let this truth go deep into our hearts and let it change us. For as believers, we are not called to maintain a safe distance from it all, Like the Son of God, we are to enter into it all and to bring the good news of Christ. So those are the first two things we see. We see that Jesus' touch creates anticipation that something's about to happen. Secondly, it reveals a great truth, the truth that our Creator is not a kind of God who stands way back from it all, but it's the kind of God who enters right down into it, so close, not even six feet away, so close as to touch those whom He draws near to. And here's the final and really very obvious thing to see in this little story of Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus' touch provides healing. Look at verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says this, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. I mean, what a wonderful moment for Peter's mother-in-law. What, a, what an incredible moment for her. And this is the wonderful moment we want to have as well. As I said earlier, whatever that is, that, that metaphorical fever, if you will, that's going on in your life, whatever's stealing your joy, whatever difficulties, whatever worries and stresses, what we need today is for Christ to touch us. We need, we need an encounter with Christ. As we were singing before, Lord, I need you. I need you to come and to help me. I need you to come and do something great in my life. So whatever it is 
the, fe- the fever that comes upon you, whatever it is that you're unable to get up and serve Christ with because it's getting you down, that's the part I think that God wants to meet you with today. Whatever that thing may be, because he wants you to get up and to serve him, to not be laying there unable to do so. And this is what Christ does. He touches her hand, the fever leaves her, and she rises and begins to serve him. So do you know what it's like for, to encounter Jesus this way, for him to touch you in this way? Has he not done this for you before in your life? Can you think of moments in the past maybe that this has happened for you? Let's think of some of the ways that he does it. I mean, one of the most common ways that I think he does it is through other people. You know, you're really struggling in life. It's very difficult. You're going through something really hard, and someone calls you up and says, hey, let's go for a walk together. You go for that walk, and you're just unloading all your burdens, and maybe that person just empathizes with you, and maybe they even pray for you. And by the end of the walk, it's not that all your problems are gone, but somehow it feels like the fever has lifted, doesn't it? Just through the care of somebody else. Other people, have you ever recognized this? Other people can be the way that Christ touches you. And if you come away from one of those conversations just even feeling like your, your fever has lifted a little, just turn to Jesus and say, thank you for sending this person to my life to help me in this time of need. That was you, Jesus, reaching out to touch me. Of course, another way that we encounter Christ and his healing touch is through reading the Bible. Sometimes you read it and you just feel like, I, don't, I didn't really feel like I got anything out of that. But then there's other days, I even had this this morning. It's not that anything terrible was going on. There's just troubles in my mind that were consuming my mind. And so got up early and before I started going over my message this morning, I just was reading in Hebrews, which is where my daily readings are, and I was talking about Christ as our great high priest and how every high priest is chosen because they can show sympathy to others. They, can, they understand others' weaknesses because they themselves know their weakness. And it kind of goes on to talk of Christ as our great high priest and just reading this, I was just thinking, Christ knows. He knows my weakness. He knows my troubles because he became a man. He can identify with me, and so then I can turn to him, my great high priest, who can speak to the Father on my behalf. I can come confidently before his throne of grace, knowing that he has grace for me in my time of need. And so for this morning, for me anyways, there's no, there's no lightning strikes. There's nothing spectacular. I just felt like as I was reading and praying that through early on, the fever of all my troubles just kind of lifted. My mind was more clear, and I was able to focus more for what I need to do this morning. So through the reading of the Word, another one, of course, is through creation. You know, how often have you been just stressed out, and you just go for a walk at the beach, in the forest, watch a sunset? There's just a lifting that happens in your heart. Again, that's Christ touching you. It's his creation. He made it. It's the great artist doing his display for you. And art of all kinds soothes our soul, whether it's through music or paintings or the artwork of nature. That is the great artist speaking to you through his artwork, bringing calm to your spirit. And, of course, another one of the great ways that God encounters us through Christ and touches us is through the corporate gathering of worship. Even this morning, to have real people here, even for me, it just lifts my spirits. There's just something there. I feel like this is kind of like, uh, you know how in wintertime, you go through all these dark and rainy, cold, dark days, and then all of a sudden, say in January 20th or something, you get these one of these days on the West Coast anyways, this is why we live here. You get like a 14-degree day, and it's sunny, 
Have you ever noticed on those days, you just suddenly, your spirit is lifted and you think, where was I that last little while? I, I didn't even really know, but my, my spirit was down and I didn't know it was down until this sunny day came along and I just, I feel more energy, I feel more strength. I think this is kind of a metaphor what COVID is. Watching online was a temporary necessity and we've learned how to do it, I suppose, <laughs> the best we can. But even just seeing these people that are here this morning, it's kind of like a sunny day has happened. And my encouragement to you is, as you feel comfortable, as you're able, come back. Because here's one of the things we do know in Scripture, that God meets with his people when they gather for corporate worship in ways he does not meet with us when we are alone. Oh, he does meet with us when we're alone. Praise. Yes, he does. Wonderful. But he meets with his people in corporate worship in ways he does not do otherwise. And you know that when you've been in a group of this size, for instance, and you're singing and you were, your heart wasn't there when you came in and all of a sudden the singing, for instance, just lifts your heart. Or maybe it's the sermon or maybe it's the prayer, whatever. Maybe talking to somebody in the lobby afterwards. I have no idea. But I think we all know those experiences where we're in corporate worship. We came in that morning and our hearts were not engaged and we left and the fever had lifted. When you're ready... Come back and let's gather and pray. I'm praying that this fall, Christ would be pleased to meet with us in corporate worship in new ways that we maybe didn't even know before and just to reinvigorate us and to put in our hearts again, oh, the glory of being together in person and caring for one another. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come, but those are some ways, I think, that Christ touches us and lifts the fever for our hearts. But here's the last one, and this is where we'll close what about the fever that comes when we sin? We've done those things that we know we shouldn't have, and we did. Maybe it's something you've done many times. You're like, why did I do that again? And the fever of guilt and of shame comes over you. And when you're in that moment, when the Holy Spirit truly convicts you, and when you sense truly how bad sin is, the natural reaction of the heart is to say, like Peter said to Jesus, depart from me, Jesus. I, I am a sinful man. When you see your sin for what it truly is, it's one of the signs that you are really a Christian. When you can truly see sin, and then you see God for who he is in his holiness, and the first reaction anyways is to say, I could never draw near to that God. He's too holy. I could never come near to him just like Peter. That's one of the signs you know you're truly a Christian is you've felt that before. You've sensed really how bad sin is and you've sensed, like Peter, I, I couldn't draw near to this God. But then you know you've understood the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, because in that moment when you're at that exact spot, it's when Jesus doesn't move away from you. He moves toward you. And when you feel most unworthy is the moment when he embraces you those moments when he reaches out his hand and touches you with his grace and lets you know that your sins are forgiven and you are most welcome. Like the prodigal son returning to his father saying, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And yet the father embraces him, calls for a giant feast to happen and says, my son. His son had said, I'm not worthy to be your son. And he says, my son who was lost is now found we're going to have a giant party and celebrate. That's how you know that you're truly a believer as you've sensed that sin 
and now you've understood the grace of God in Christ. But then what do you do when you're now a Christian and you're saying, but now I'm still sinning and the fever of guilt and of shame is coming over me because now I know better. Before, at least I could say I didn't know better. Now I do. What do you do in that moment? You Again, you need the touch of Christ. You need the touch of his hand. But listen to this. It's not just his hand that you need to touch you. It's his nail-pierced hand that you need to touch you. They were pierced, his hands were. Why were they pierced? Well, as Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. One of the greatest single lines in all of Scripture. Substitute your own name in there. He was pierced for, put your name here. He was pierced for your transgressions. And then get more specific. He was pierced for your transgressions of what? What is it that you need to hear? Listen, for some of you, you need to hear he was pierced for your transgressions of anger, which you let out, which destroyed relationships. And when you confess your sins to him of anger, you got to remember that Jesus says to you now, he has forgiven you. It's time to make things right again. He was pierced, perhaps, for you viewing pornography when you know you should not have done it again. He was pierced for the affair that you had that you shouldn't have done, but now you're confessing it to Christ and saying, I need forgiveness for that. He was pierced for those sins that you've committed, maybe with people of the same sex that you shouldn't have. He was pierced for those sexual sins you committed with people of the opposite sex. And my heart for some of you this morning is he was pierced for the abortion that you had that still plagues your mind. He was pierced for all of those. He was pierced for our transgressions, whatever they may be, so that when we say, Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. You don't know what I've done, Jesus. He reaches out his nail-pierced hand and says, I was pierced for that transgression. And if we confess our sins to him, he says he's faithful and he is just, not only to forgive us of those sins, but to cleanse us from all the unrighteousness of them, so that like Peter's mother-in-law, we can get up and start to serve him again. We should not lay on the bed of guilt and shame for too long. The devil would love us to be there. We need to go through godly sorrow and repentance for the things that we have done. But then we need to receive Christ's touch, to receive his forgiveness, to get up and to start serving him again. For his hand has reached out, his nail-pierced hand, to rescue us. There's a story about a bunch of people were climbing in the Swiss Alps with their guide, a professional guide. As they were crossing some snow, they didn't realize they were going across a crevasse, and the crevasse began to collapse, and everyone managed to grab onto the side, and they, most of them were saved, but one man was out in the middle and still on kind of a pillar of ice that was beginning to collapse around him, and the guide on the safe side yelled to him, jump, man, jump! And the man was too afraid, and he just kept standing there. He was frozen. He couldn't do it. And the guide yelled to him, and he said, You've got to jump, man. I'll catch you. My hands have never dropped anyone yet. And the man jumped. The, man, the guide grabbed his hand, 
and pulled him to safety. And this is what you need to hear and all I need to hear this morning as well. Christ's nail-pierced hand has never dropped anyone yet. So whatever your sins may be, whatever may be going on in your life, reach for that hand. For these words we read in John chapter 10 are so powerful. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus' hand is secure, so whatever it is that's in your life, grab onto his hand. His hand has never dropped anyone yet. And after you've had that fever lifted, whatever the fever is, like Peter's mother-in-law, get up and start serving him. Use your life, however that is, for his glory. Say, Jesus, okay, what can I do for you? How can I serve you with the gifts, the abilities that you have given me? Let me do that, Jesus, because you've done this for me. So let's come to a point in our service now where we'll bring all this together, and that's to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. For the Lord's Supper is a tangible, physical representation to remind us of all the great truths that we have just heard. That God is not just a concept. Just like bread is physical and real, God is physical and real in the sense that his, he came into this world in the person of his son taking on a physical body for us, represented in the bread for us. That God came near and touched us as you can touch and hold that physical object in your hand. God is not a philosophy. He's not a concept, an idea. He draws near to touch us. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of God's forgiveness given to us through the death of Jesus Christ. So we'll talk more about what this is in just a moment. But let's prepare our hearts. Uh, if you're in the room and somehow you did not get one, put up your hand. We'll find somebody who can make sure that you get the supplies that you need. If you're at home, make sure you get them. And let's spend a moment right now preparing our hearts. And here's what I'll encourage you to do is we're just going to sing two verses of a song just to get our hearts prepared. Spend a moment confessing your sins and then spend a moment praising Jesus that he entered into it all and he was pierced for our transgressions. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.